Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the auto industry, about the strike that is happening against the Detroit Three automakers, about the auto show, what effect the strike may be having on it, and about the shift to carbon neutrality and the surprising way in which the automakers are leaning into it. Jake Neer and Jamie Butters of Automotive News will join. It'll be a great show. Jamie, Welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Glad to be here. Yeah. So let's start with the strikes. I, I am asking everyone these days, of course, what their reaction is to the strike of the of all three Detroit uh, automakers by the UAW. Uh, how are the big three handling these ongoing strikes? And what does all of this mean in the industry's context? Uh, the automakers are frustrated. <laughs> uh, they're frustrated, which, uh, you know, is probably uh, fair, I guess. You know, the UAW came into the strike with a lot of frustration of their own. Uh, the rank and file are mad about both the poor leadership they had in the past, uh, the massive, you know, scandal that sent a couple of their former presidents to prison briefly, uh, sent a lot of other people away for you know, misusing union funds or taking influence, taking, you know, accepting un unnatural gifts from the automakers. Um, they're mad about inflation, you know, that they weren't able to get their wages boosted in the last four years when a lot of other people from fast foods to, you know, Toyota workers uh, <laughs> and <laughs> other places were seeing big raises to keep up with inflation. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of frustration there. And Sean Fain, you know, came out with this really strong, list of demands, um, you know, really, he called it audacious. I mean, it was really over the top and he has not budged. I mean, he's come down a little, you know, from nominally 40% uh, raises to 36, you know, 18% right off the bat. Um, I think, you know, wages are gonna go up. Uh, we saw it at, with the Teamsters at UPS, we've seen it across the board, wages are gonna go up, but, yeah, he, it sounds like he has not at all come off the idea of returning to a defined benefit pension mm -hmm. or cutting back to a four-day work week. And these are things that, I mean, the, they're, they're non-starters with the automakers. And he doesn't want to come off of them. Maybe, you know, he needs, maybe there's a sense that he needs the drama of these strikes to build support and get people to accept the tentative agreement that eventually comes out. Um, but, you know, they're there just getting beat up every day. Sean Fain goes out and says they're horrible people and they won't, you know, give us a fair wage and they can't get any progress, you know, can't make a lot of progress. So there's a lot of frustration. Uh, and uh, I guess maybe if the frustration gets equal on both sides, they'll mm -hmm. get to the point where they can reach a deal. So, so I want to go back to this uh, idea that the things, or at least some of the things that the UAW is asking for are non-starters with the auto companies. Why is a defined benefit plan, for instance, uh, a non-starter? Why is retiree health care, improving retiree health care, a non-starter? Explain the, 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 the position that the companies are in. Yeah, you know, these, the, those were big parts of reasons that GM and Chrysler went into bankruptcy in the first place, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, they, uh, the problem is they make uh, commitments 
that are very hard to project. I mean, they seem easy to project and you've got actuaries and people will tell you what they're gonna cost and they think they can put aside enough money. But if you are losing market share, you have a base of employees who become retirees and then you have a smaller base of employees later, there's not enough revenue generated to cover those people in what can be very long retirements. And so they got into trouble, you know, they made a lot of commitments in the 50s and 60s when they were truly the big three. You know, GM, Ford, and Chrysler used to control 90% of the US market. Mm -hmm. They had incredible power and they could, and UAW had the power to stop them. And in exchange, the automakers would raise pay and benefits for workers and then raise the prices for the customer. Now, I mean, even in 1999, they had 68% of the market. Now they have 40, you know, and it's tough. You know, you've gotten, it's not just the Toyota, Honda, Nissan, Hyundai, it's Tesla. It's now, you know, we've got BYD from China, a lot of Chinese automakers looking to come in with very affordable EVs. Um, you know, the Detroit three, I mean, that's why we call them the Detroit three and not the big three. Uh, they're just not that big anymore and they can't just absorb everything. And, Look, and Sean Fain and the UAW are not wrong that you, that the automakers have made a ton of money in the last few years. Yeah. But that was really exceptional times, as we've talked about. And I know your your listeners have heard, you know, there was a shortage. There was a shortage of microchips that led to a shortage of vehicles. Um, and the automakers made only their most profitable vehicles and they didn't have to put a lot of marketing or incentives on them. They made a killing. That's not going to last. That's already coming to an end. And then you've got all the costs of ramping up an EV business ahead of them. They can't be making promises that they can't keep. Yeah. So, so I, I do want to talk specifically about the the difference, though, between the way the changes that you just talked about have affected workers and do affect the prospect of things like a defined benefit. Uh, pension uh, system or retiree health care for them but but and contrast that to the way it seems to have affected management and and leadership at the at the companies mary barra who is the ceo of gm and by all accounts has done a really great job in that role made about 29 million dollars last year now, that is a lot more than what the GM CEO was making when they controlled 90% of the, of the market share. And, and it's significantly more, in fact, than she was making even a decade ago. So, so if you're the companies, how do you explain that? I mean, there, it's one thing to talk about the gap between – what management is making and what workers are making, and and I think uh, the, the the union is really really focused on that. But but mm-hmm. separately, how the how each are affected by these these big changes in the industry is also uh, I, I think uh, something that deserves an explanation or at least exploration. What's what's the answer for that? Yeah. I mean, it definitely is part of, as we, as we started off talking about, I mean, the frustration and anger among the working people in America. Uh, high compensation for CEOs is um, a very real issue for that. I mean, I can explain to you that on the, you know, the mechanics of it, uh, 
these automakers have generated a lot of profit for their owners mm -hmm. and owners reward the managers who deliver them. You know, it's not, uh, Mary Barra is not now on a contract that ensures she is going to get, you know, 29 to $35 million every single year, right? Her salary, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I think her salary is a couple million dollars. Sure. Um, it's in the low single digit millions. The rest is, you know, it's stock options that accrue and, um, you know, bonuses for hitting targets. So when they have these extraordinary years, you know, CEOs should get, I mean, just should, and I don't mean should, like morally should, but as the, the way the structure is, the way the game is played, they should, those are the years when they should get outsized, uh, you know, bonuses and compensation. And then if things fall back, right, then they sh their bonuses should go away and they're back to living on just, you know, a couple million dollars and some nice uh, benefits. Hmm. I'm talking with Jamie Butters. He is the executive editor of Automotive News and co-host of the Automotive News Daily Drive podcast. We're talking right now about the strike of the UAW against the Detroit Three automakers. We're also going to talk in a little bit about the auto show, which is going on this week at Huntington Place, whether you knew it or not, uh, and <laughs> what effect the strike might be having on the auto show, but also uh, the trouble that the show has been having for several years. Uh, anyway, we'd love to have you as part of the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know, uh, again, what you make of the UAW strike against the, the Detroit Three automakers. Uh, we, we love to hear, especially from folks who are involved in the strike. Are you a UAW member? Are you someone who works at one of uh, the plants here in Detroit that the Detroit Three operate? Give us a sense of how this all feels almost a week into the work stoppage. Uh, are you enthusiastic about the prospects that you'll get a better contract, uh, the things that uh, the UAW is asking for? Or are you starting to worry about the loss of pay that will set in, of course, uh, as long as the strike is taking place. Uh, also give us a sense uh, of your hope for the relationship between management and workers at the Detroit Three. What does the strike do to that relationship? Does it make it better? Does it make it stronger? Or does it strain uh, that relationship in a way that we haven't seen in many years? Also, give us a sense if you're going to the auto show uh, this year. Have you been already? What was it like? Uh, do you plan to attend maybe? Uh, or are you maybe sitting the show out because of the strikes that are happening against uh, the Detroit Three automakers? Uh, the charity preview, which happens every year at the auto show, was last Friday. And I know a lot of people who decided to sit it out this year in honor of the strikes uh, against the Detroit Three Automakers. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Okay, Jamie, I do want to transition to uh, talking a little about the auto show. You and I have had conversations about this in the past, and in fact, in early summer, we had a conversation about worries about the show and participation in the show. It's it's here now. It's open. People, I assume, are attending. Uh, what, what do you know about the effect of the problems that they have been having at the auto show and 
the added problem of of the strike. Yeah, I mean the show, um, the show as it is now is you know kind of pretty similar to last year. I think they've tried to make some improvements uh, with the uh, EV test track. They actually Tesla uh, contributed a few vehicles to be used for you know educational purposes. Uh, I'm told uh, my my podcast co-host Kellen Walker said the um, the refreshed Model Three was on display. You couldn't get in it, but you could see it. Uh, this is the one that they revealed recently in China and then showed off in Munich. So there's some chance to see it, but there's no stand, there's no display, there's no information or anyone to answer questions about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's really a Detroit Three show with the you know really limited participation by other brands. They of course did a great job of trying to get. Uh, the, the Detroit auto dealers did a great job, their members of, you know, bringing out vehicles from their brands to make sure that you have some, you know, BMW, Mercedes, Honda, Acura, and the rest, you know, on the floor, but it's not, you know, the kind of full displays we used to see. Um, I think the show, the room looks a little better. Ford has a nice display with big bright blue curtains that hang from ceiling to floor. So when you first walk in the door, you don't immediately look straight to the back and see the back wall. Um, I think that was um, a, a nice touch, a really, um, you know, it looked like a cost-effective way to make the, the room look better. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's, it's a smaller show, but if you're a local uh, consumer or, you know, someone who works at the automakers, you wanna go check out the competition, go show, you know, your, your kids what kind of stuff you work on during the day, um, it's, it's good for that. So uh, wh- how much worry is there by the auto dealers whose show this is that the changes that we made to the auto show, the change in the time of year and the change in the approach to show is maybe not working. Uh, this is the second year of it being in the fall. And, and I know people should probably be patient uh, with the, the things that have changed. But I, I wonder if you get a sense of what their reaction is to the way things have gone so far and whether maybe they're talking about further changes to get people more excited about all this. I've heard talk about further changes. I think the problem is no one really has a clear, you know, no brainer solution. Um, You know, we're running into a lot. I think a lot of the challenges that people suggested in the first place about moving from January to September or June you know, part of the pitch is it's a lovely time in Michigan. And so, hey, folks can come to Southeast Michigan. They can see the auto show and do other stuff. But the problem is it's a lovely time in Michigan and there's a lot of other stuff to do. And uh, whereas in January, when the weather is yucky um, and maybe it's during, whether it's during the holiday break or at least it's over, you know, Martin Luther King weekend, you can, um, people have the time and they have fewer other options maybe. it's tough because staying in January, you're going to continue to be, you know, bullied and dominated by CES, mm-hmm. which has really become the, you know, preeminent auto show uh, in North America, if not the world. And, you know, if you try something like June, you're competing with graduation and Father's Day, you know, September. I mean, my the the guy I get my tuxedo from, you know, he was so slammed just with all the weddings you know Mm. here in september and you just don't that was one thing having it in january whether (laughs) your hotels restaurants tuxedo rentals you know um it's a slow time of the year and the spring and the fall are not 
Yeah. So it's um, it's a it's a real dilemma. They're in a real pickle. Asmodeus on on Twitter says, "What are the ethics involved in attending the auto show while workers are on strike?" Seems like a contradiction. We haven't heard much about outside the the context of the charity preview, whether people are going to stay away from the show because of the strikes. Uh, Jamie, what do we know about that? Um, you know, the, the charity preview presented um, particular challenges, you know, of optics you know, where you have uh, workers rallying in their red t-shirts, you know, within a few blocks of where, you know, folks are dressed up in tuxedos and ball gowns and, and drinking sparkling wine. Uh, so, you know, that's a little uncomfortable. The other problem with Friday, you know, not only being the first day of this uh, unusual historic strike, it was also the start of Rosh Hashanah. You know, it was just a, it was a tough time to have a charity preview. Uh, I think for the regular show, I don't know if people feel like it's uh, better to stay away, they, that I can understand that. I think there's, I don't think people should have to feel bad about going um, you're still going to have an auto industry. You know, the, <laughs> these vehicles are going to have to be made and sold. Uh, the members are going to, you know, even those who are on strike at Michigan Assembly still want you to buy Broncos. You know, they just want you to, they want to get paid for it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know. Do you think it's um, betraying the union to go uh, look at the cars that they made? Yeah, I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think... On the one hand, it makes sense to show some solidarity with the workers and say, look, we're not partaking in industry activities or events right now, but this is really not as much about the industry as it is about the dealers. Um, on the other hand, I, I kind of feel like you you want to support the industry, right? You want to support the idea of the industry and how cool it is. I mean, the auto show is, I think, one of the ways that we kind of show off uh, the the attachment to cars that we have and, and the ingenuity that is behind all of the cars. And celebrating that seems to me to be kind of celebrating the workers uh, as well. I, I actually haven't decided whether I'm going to go this year. I did not go to the charity preview for the first time in 16 years, uh, but that actually had nothing to do with the strike. I just had not planned to go this year. Um, but, but I haven't decided whether I'm going to go and, and actually just kind of walk the floor and see, see what's what. Uh, I, I do think it's somewhat of a, of a dilemma. Like, how do you show support for the workers, do you go or do you not go? Or do you go and you wear a pro-union, you know, shirt or button? <laughs> right, right, or a shirt or or, or something yeah. like that. Who knows? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to B in Detroit. B, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm well. I'm cool. calling in regard to the auto show. Uh-huh. I was at the auto show a few years ago, pre-COVID. I took my elderly mom down there, and my sister joined us. Well, as we were in the auto show, I'm always observant. I was looking up at the ceiling. I saw some sparks. So I told my mom and my sister, hey, we got to do something because it's going to be a fire. Mm -hmm. Before I could get the words out of my mouth, it started smoking and a fire. 
they put us they put us outside with my elderly mom. Fast forward, I tried to get a refund for that day. They refused to give me a refund. Oh no. <laughs> that was horrible. And, and then, that was back before they changed the auto show. Was this, this I was gonna say, was this in, in January? Brutally cold out there. Yeah, Brutally cold. It was. I was gonna say it was. It's not a good time to have, to be outside. B, I really appreciate the call uh, and the insight. You know, I mean, look, people have bad experiences at the auto show, uh, regardless of what's going on. I guess uh, uh, I, I do. I do wonder whether it's worse this year than than other years, and whether people are just uh, just deciding to stay. To stay away, uh, Jamie. I, I, I want to talk a little about the ways in which the the strike um, and the auto show kind of being together uh, does that have any effect uh, on the negotiations? Does that have any effect on the length of this strike? Is the auto show an opportunity for the union to get a better deal to put some leverage uh, on the on the company, or does it? Are they these two separate tracks? Um, I don't think it makes a big difference um, other than I think the, that, that contrast on Friday night when, um, you know, for him to be, for Sean Fain, the UAW president to be able to play up, you know, the image of uh, industry fat cats uh, enjoying themselves. I haven't seen him, you know, in the Facebook lives or on, you know, national interviews he's giving. He hasn't been, uh, calling out the auto show. I think he's making an issue of that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he is making an issue of, of CEO compensation. He's making an issue of corporate profits. Um, you know, and so I think that's, that's the pressure he's really putting on them. And of course, then the threat of expanding the strike, uh, presumably on Friday at noon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do think B raises an interesting point, right? That there uh-huh. are, you know, on the one hand, if you go in the, in the more yucky months of the year, uh, there's less competition, but it is more challenging, you know, to get to the show. And yeah. if something goes wrong, if you have trouble finding parking and you have to go from a few blocks away, I mean, we've all tromped through a bunch of slush and gunk trying to get into the auto show. Yes. Uh, and that is a, a nice thing to avoid when the weather's nice. Yeah. Every year getting my tux cleaned to get the salt <laughs> stains out of uh, the, the, the cuffs on the legs is, is, is not fun. So I don't miss that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Jamie Butters, who is the uh, executive editor of Automotive News. We're going to add another voice to the conversation as well, a familiar one here at Detroit Today. Jake Neer, he leads Automotive News audio storytelling and podcasting operations. He also used to be a producer here on Detroit Today. He's the host of the new Driving to Zero podcast, which is about the auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality. That is what we're going to talk about when we come back. How is the industry going to embrace and achieve this idea of carbon neutrality? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you joined. We have been talking about the auto industry, about the strike of the UAW against the Detroit automakers, and about the auto show, which, whether you know it or not, is actually happening this week at Huntington Place in downtown Detroit. We've got two great guests with us right now. We want to continue the conversation about the industry, but talk a little more about this idea of carbon neutrality. Jamie Butters is executive editor of Automotive News and co-host of the Automotive News Daily Drive uh, uh, podcast. He is an executive editor of the Driving to Zero podcast, which is taking a look at uh, carbon neutrality and how the industry deals with it. I also want to welcome Jake Near to the studio. He leads Automotive News audio storytelling and podcasting operations. He is the host of the new Driving to Zero podcast as well, which is about the industry's shift to carbon neutrality. Jake, welcome back to Detroit Today. It is so nice to be back here with you, Stephen. I was going to say, I I don't remember the last time you were sitting across from me here (laughs) at WDT, but you used to do it all the time. It's been a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jake, let's talk about this this podcast, but, but also this idea of the shift to zero from car companies. Uh, Why does that matter? What does that mean? And how does an industry that creates machines, that create all kinds of carbon waste, move to the idea of, of carbon neutrality? This is sort of my line from the very beginning of the podcast and the project as I've been trying to sell this kind of, you know, that if you look at the auto industry, um, it sits sort of at this really important intersection. The three largest emitters, the big, the three sectors that emit the most carbon are transportation, energy, and industry. And if you're going to draw a Venn diagram of those three sectors, the auto industry sits really right at the center. So, you know, the auto industry has really powerful R&D, you know, the technology that's moving to uh, address these issues is a lot of that is coming from investments from the auto industry. It's really important that this specific industry, even though it's just, you know, one of many that emit a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, it is leading the way and it's doing it in a really important way because the tentacles kind of reach out across the economy. So, so would you describe the industry's position on this as embracing and full steam ahead? Or is there a little bit of reluctance? I mean, this is going to be an expensive shift for them. Also, uh, also in the context of their shift to uh, electric vehicles, which is also expensive. I mean, this just kind of piles on at a time when the future of the industry is still kind of rocky or uncertain. Yeah, it's been a long road. And I think when we think of, you know, uh, the corporate sector, we often uh, think of it as sort of a monolith and everyone moving in the same direction, uh, you know, at the same time, chasing Wall Street, that sort of thing. And there's some truth to that. But if you look, if you listen to the podcast and you take a look at every single automaker and, and all of the auto companies uh, in the industry, you you get a sense that it's, it's very individual, that every company has sort of come to it um, in different ways and unique ways. And in, in the U.S., it really starts with Bill Ford uh, as a young executive coming into Ford Motor Company. Uh, you know, he comes in with these really sort of uh, forward-looking, environmentally conscious ideas. 
And the top brass of Ford uh, actually tells him, this is the way he says it, please stop associating with any known or suspected environmentalists. You know, this is this is the head of <laughs> these are the the heads of Ford telling him uh, to stop, you know, being beating the drum on these issues. But he doesn't stop. And as executive, he, you know, goes forth and, and really um, does a lot of things to try to change the direction of this very, very old, hundred plus old uh, company. Uh, and then, you know, with you know, GM has its own story. Um, Toyota has a very different and unique story. You know, every company um, is uh, is going about it in different ways. But if you look, I mean, especially last year, it seemed like every single week and maybe multiple days a week, uh, Jamie and I were reporting on these billion, two billion, three billion dollar investments in mm-hmm. things like battery plants mm-hmm. and things like future products that are electrified, EVs, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's really hard to say that there is not an embrace of these ideas now. I, I think that, uh, you know, there is still plenty of criticism from environmentalists about, you know, making products that still burn fossil fuels. And that's a legitimate criticism. But um, the investments are happening. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, we have a clip from GM spokesperson Ray Wirt on the company's electrification strategy. Let's take a listen to that. You know, there was a, a moment where I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all electric future. And um, I think it was both, uh, I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. And I said, well, and I said, that's sort of the problem. I said, if we, we just went out there and said, we believe in, a, in a, a vision of a world of zero emissions, sort of as engineers, tell me how do we get to a world of zero emissions if we're still burning fossil fuels? And there wasn't an answer to that question. And, uh, and so there was a, it was a little bit of silence after that. That was uh, GM spokesperson Ray Wirt on the company's electrification strategy as part of the Driving to Zero podcast. Uh, Jamie, I want to bring you back into the conversation here. Uh, uh, Talk about how this affects labor, this idea of moving to EVs first, but then moving further to carbon neutrality. A lot of people are afraid this means there will be fewer jobs and fewer jobs of the kind that we're used to lots of people being able to get here in Southeast Michigan. Yeah, I think, you know, from the labor perspective, you know, so as Jake and I'd really tried to look at it, there's the, there are the vehicles and then there's, you know, the factories. And then of course, how the vehicles and the factories are all powered, Um, you know, having on the, on the factory level, I think generally it's uh, supported. You know, you, it, there's a lot of moves to, you know, try. It's it's not like they're um, trying to become carbon neutral by, you know, turning off the air conditioner or turning off the heat in the winter. Um, but there is a lot of concern among workers about the shift to EVs. Uh, there's concern both from the sense that they are simpler machines that require, you know, fewer human hands to build Hmm. Uh, a lot of the batteries and battery components are really uh, heavily roboticized and and even if even setting that aside i mean that's a big difference between all the hands that have to go into making engines and transmissions and and those uh, exhaust systems and all that 
Um, but then the vehicles are simpler themselves. They're simpler to put together. And there's a big concern that there just won't be as many jobs, even if the industry remains, you know, at a robust or record setting volume of output. That might end up being good for consumers. Mm -hmm. But again, for the workers in the plant, for an entity like the UAW, it's a significant concern. Yeah. What is this industry going to look like in 10 years, in 20 years, which you know, is a long time. It's a lot longer than a, a presidential term, but uh, it's not that long in the scope of a career. Yeah. Um, Jake, your first episode explores Ford's transition uh, to EVs. Talk about what that looked like for them, why they did it, and how that fits into the labor context. Yeah, like I said, uh, you know, it really starts with Bill Ford as chairman um, of Ford Motor, Motor Company. And the way we co kind of go about it is uh, setting the stage for this entire environmental evolution, which is the title of the episode, uh, using Ford's Rouge plant as sort of an illustration of the entire industry and its evolution on, on climate and things like that. You know, if you think about the Ford Rouge plant when it first uh, opened, uh, you know, this massive complex, Henry Ford wanted to vertically integrate everything and so they were you know they had a you know a rubber plant in, or a rubber um, facility in the Amazon and they were uh, you know cutting down forests in Michigan you know all of these materials were all coming to this one spot and it was sort of an illustration of, of the environmental impact and then if you look at the Ford Rouge complex now it's become sort of a, a, a sort of the the um, example that a lot of people point to about how to retrofit hmm. uh, a complex, an old complex, in an environmentally conscious way. It has a living roof. Uh, as Jamie has mentioned, they've, they've planted native grasses to try to get the toxins out of the soil, and they're building, you know, electric trucks there now. I mean, it's it, it sort of really encompasses all the ways that, um, that, that Ford has tried to go about this, and, and an illustration of the industry as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also uh, ha talked a little about Toyota uh, mm -hmm. and they've got hybrid cars that they've had for a long time, but they've had a bit of a controversial transition to EVs. I want to play a clip from your podcast. Uh, this is Toyota's chief scientist, Gil Pratt, and its Center for Biological Diversity's Dan Becker talking about that. The goal is to reduce net CO2 emissions it's not to convert everybody to one particular kind of car. That's the means to the end. It's the end itself that matters the most. It's really sad to see what's happened to Toyota. They've, they've gone from, from Prius Envy to clunker. That's Dan Becker, who's been a prominent voice among U.S. environmental activists for decades. He's now director of the Center for Biological Diversity's Safe Climate Transport Campaign. They're so single-minded in their opposition to electric vehicles. And they've come up with lots of excuses. That was uh, Gil Pratt, uh, plus Center for Biological Diversity's Dan Becker on Toyota's controversial approach to electrification. It's interesting to see a, a company be a leader at first and then kind of kind of lose pace, Jake. <laughs> you know, Toyota's such an interesting example um, because like you said, you know, the Prius was a darling of environmentalism when it came out in the 90s. And, uh, you know, they've invested a lot into hybrid technology and environmentalists are criticizing them, saying, why aren't you going full on into EVs? 
um, you know, and and they the, they suspect that it's because they have all this uh, investment into hybrids. Now, if you listen to Gil Pratt, though, he makes some really interesting points. I mean, Toyota is unlike any other automaker in the world today. It's the largest automaker by volume, and it's serving you know all of these markets across the world that no other automaker uh, is serving. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Are you going to sell uh, people full battery electric vehicles in the Amazon or in sub-Saharan Africa where there are no fast chargers? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, and so what he's saying is actually, it, it, at least in his mind, not all that different than what other automakers are saying. It's just not an apples to oranges comparison. I'm interested in what Jamie has to say about that yeah. too. Yeah, Jamie, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think the global the global scale that Toyota has in some of those developing markets it serves is important. I would also note uh, Toyota was caught a little flat-footed in part because, look, EVs are still money losers, yeah. mm-hmm. right? They are for everybody. And if you're Toyota making 10 million vehicles a year, you want to be very cautious about committing to, uh, to how fast you're going to convert. I mean, they've said they're going to make three and a half million and be more than a third of their output would be EVs by, I think it's the end of the decade. But, um, you know, they really were reluctant. You know, they were early partners with Tesla and Tesla's like, oh, you should take our powertrain and put it in a RAV4. And they're like, okay, yeah, but that'd be like a $50,000 RAV4. <laughs> right. And, you know, Elon Musk was like, well, you should sell it for 20,000, yeah. <laughs> but we can't lose $25,000 per car, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, they were really reluctant. And then I think they've really had to wake up as the market has been turned on to EVs. And that's why they're part of why they're in it now. Yeah. Okay. The podcast is driving to zero, uh, dropped on September 10th. The last episode of the eight show podcast will drop on November 6th. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts or at the automotive news website, Jamie Butters and Jake near congratulations on the work. And thanks for being here on Detroit today. Thanks Steven. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. That's it for the Detroit Today podcast. You like this show. You get a lot out of it. You ought to be sharing it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors, your relative, anyone you think would enjoy it and would add to this community that we're building here. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.